Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Anybody else feel like dancing to that music just a little bit? How are you guys doing? You hanging in there? Oh man, it's so good to be with you. My name is Jonathan, um, the real Jonathan, left with his family to do a little vacation in. I get the honor of being here with you today. Um, good to see you and all your smiling faces. So uh, last week, if you were here, if you've been tracking with us online, last week we launched into a new series. And that series took us into the book of Proverbs. So we've been walking through Proverbs, and Pastor Jonathan launched us into humility and pride as a subject. And this week, we want to go a little bit deeper, a little bit further as part of a six-week series. Uh, But we're going to talk today about an incredibly important and difficult subject. It's huge. We're just going to talk about a slice of it, and it's children and parenting. Children and parenting, which... um, Well, I don't know if you know this, but we're all here because somebody investigated this subject. So it's like dear to all of our hearts, right? Uh, So, but it's huge. We all recognize it's a big, big deal when we talk about this because, um, because we all have a story. In fact, my story with regards to children and parenting um, doesn't actually start with me, you know, you know, my story long time ago, being born and all that kind of stuff. It actually starts for me when I think about it with my first born son experience. And, uh, and if you've ever been a parent, um, this, uh, this story probably resonates with you. But I will never forget, I will never forget going to the hospital on the wee hours of the morning and anticipating uh, the arrival of my very first child. And uh, we had just landed on the name. Like it was one of those long debates I mean, it's the first kid. You can't screw up that early, right? Like, you got to figure this piece out. And I remember, I remember there's a whole story behind, finally found, you know, Seth's name. And, and here we are. We're, we've done everything right. I mean, there had never been a better mother than Shannon. I don't think, even though she had a thousand headaches, she took one painkiller. I mean, you know, she, would, she had the diet down pat. I mean, she'd done everything that a mother should do. And there we were, and we, we, we went to the hospital and discovered over the course of time that that was just the beginning of a very long ordeal. The fact of the matter is 33 hours of hard labor. And if you're a mom, you know there's a difference between like labor and hard labor. 33 hours of hard labor. Later, we ended up with a beautiful baby boy. Now we didn't know, we didn't know like if it was gonna be a girl or a boy. We went old school, we have four kids. Uh, three of them are here in the room, one is away in and, and, and college. And, and, and out of all those kids, we kind of did everything. Like we did the envelope, 
The envelope, you know, where the doctor writes down the baby's sex and, and then you, you'd have a party out in the park with your family. This, that's the way we did it. And you open the envelope in front of family and discover, you know, what you're going to be having. And we've done the, we've done the, we know ahead of time and we just knew, um, you know, to plan. And then we did two of them just we didn't know. And, uh, and this one we just didn't know. And I'm so glad we didn't know because, because after 33 hours of labor, you're just so thankful for a baby, a healthy baby. And I remember that moment of holding this child after the travail of childbirth. I remember holding this child and just being so grateful and so thankful that I had been privy, that I had been able to witness one of life's miracles. And here's the thing, is in that moment, as I was sharing this with my wife and we were just sharing in life together that we felt like we were really alive, like we were really living, like we had done something special, something spectacular, something that demanded the help of God, and God was with us in that hospital room. But you know the way all stories are. It was almost like a a false climax. I mean, really, The rest of the story is we left the hospital as we do, and we went home, and we experienced what every single parent, I think, on earth for all time has experienced. After that moment of great elation and exuberance, we went home and began to wonder if we had entered into a story that was too great for us. Like we started where every parent begins, not really knowing anything about what we were doing. Like, what if we made a mistake? Like this poor kid, this is a beautiful baby boy. Does it know what kind of parents it got? (laughs) And the worries and the fears start to invade. And you guys, if you've been there in that first child, you just start to, you just start to let that run, right? That reel of, what if, it, what if it doesn't wake up? What if we didn't feed it enough? Or what if we fed it too much, you know? And, and everything is like, you know, a, a disaster, right? And, and then, and it's just this whole mixture of emotions, all these different experiences that come together. And you wonder if you're cut out for this. And, and I liken it to being on a sailing vessel. Have you guys ever been sailing? Like out on a lake? I grew up with a ski boat, and so in ski boats, you know, you've got the throttle, you've got the power. Frankly, you just about have absolute control of everything. You can just feel the power, and you can turn on a dime, and, and you can be where you want to be, and you can time it just about right once you learn what you're doing. Sailing is a completely different world. I remember in college, I had the opportunity to get on a sailing boat, and I determined after this experience that not only would it be the first time that I had a chance to sail, but it would be the last time ever that I sailed. We went out with one of my older brother's friends and his dad's boat, and all things started well, like it had a little motor on it, and we kind of putzed out into the open lanes, into the channels. And for some, the experience of sailing is poetic. It's romantic. The, the wind just sort of, you know, wisping you along. It's the stuff of novels. For me, it was a nightmare. We got into the wind, and it just whipped up. 
And the next thing I knew, we were like sideways, which isn't sailing. It's, it's next to crashing. That's what it felt like, right? Totally out of control. And I realized that, that it was an experience like having a baby. It was exhilarating, <laughs> and it was a little overwhelming. And then I looked around at the lake, and when we had gone out into the lake, it was filled with other sailors. Boats were literally everywhere. But by the time we were in the middle of the lake, I discovered we were the only ones out there. That's like parenting too sometimes. It feels exciting. You're filled with hope. The potential seems unending, but it can be just a little bit unnerving, a little bit overwhelming. It's a little bit unsteady. Like, I remember numerous times in the last 18 years raising our oldest son, literally telling him, kind of in a comedic sort of a way, hey, Seth, you realize this is our first time being parents too, right? Like the truth of the matter is, is there isn't a book that comes with your kids. You've heard that before. So we all start in that same point. This is our starting point. And like anybody smart would do, when we start there without a whole lot of knowledge, we all go searching for help. And we go searching for help in a lot of different ways. Uh, one way we go searching for help in our culture, our society, we're so educated, we're so smart, um, we go searching with books. And so, so we did, Shannon and I did what all of you guys have done, and we went out and said, what are the psychologists and what are the counselors and, and what does everybody say out there? Like, there's resources, let's tap into those resources. That's one pathway that we often chase. Another pathway we often chase is the pathway of tradition. Like, what did mom do? What did dad do? Uh, what, what, what do we see other people around us doing? And we start to compare our parenting behaviors with those around us, and, and hopefully we try to learn a little bit from each other, and that's great. Um, so we, we go down these paths, um, and it sort of lands us in this, I don't know what you'd call it, an esoteric hodgepodge of parenting skills, where we all kind of feel like maybe we have a secret, we have a corner on it, and someday we'll get to release that at just the right moment. But the fact of the matter is over time we realize we still don't know very much about what we're doing. And we're just hoping that our kids will turn out. We're hoping that things will propel us forward as a family in the right direction. But who knows which way the wind blows. Which leads me to this conclusion. I think every parent comes to this conclusion very, very soon out of the gate. And it's this. That what we do know, what we believe, is that change is unavoidable. It's inevitable. In fact, everything is changing. From the moment you step off the, from, from out of the hospital and into your own home, everything begins to change. It doesn't take long before that little baby starts to sort of fill out and then they start to crawl and they start to walk and it just starts this whole process and what you knew to be true is no longer true. You're always growing. You're always learning. In fact, you discover in this moment that you have to grow. You have to keep learning if you're going to parent. And what you've discovered, if you've ever been in that situation, is the resources that you once bought into have begun to change. Have you noticed that? When it comes to the resources your grandparents used to train their children, to train you, 
You're using a different set of resources with a different set of instructions. But the moments also change too, don't they? The fact of the matter is, is, is that the moments are fleeting. Remember that song from Steve's, Stephen uh, Curtis Chapman? Stephen Curtis Chapman. I think it's called Cinderella. And it's this song about him and his daughter and this dance, right? And eventually the goal of the dance is that he hands his daughter off to Prince Charming. I realized when I had two daughters that that's actually where I'm heading someday. Hopefully there's a Prince Charming and hopefully I'll be there to hand my daughters off. What a great story. But you know, that story informs today. If that's true, if this is a moment parenting, if it's fleeting, how does that inform how I behave and what I invest in today? I realize, I realize that there are moments. And if I'm, if I'm smart, if I'm wise, I'll recognize their significance. I'll invest now because I won't always be able to invest. So the resources are changing. The moments are changing. They're, these kids are growing up, but then also we're changing. Our kids are changing. I mean, I remember when our kids would greet me at the door and then they hit adolescence and I had to go greet them in their bedroom and pull them back out into the living room. Like something shifted in our relationship, something changed, strategic. And I had to identify it, I had to pivot because they're changing. If I was gonna reach them, I needed to change. The fact is, I think I'm changing and my wife is cha- are changing. Like our season of life is changing. The energy we once had, we no longer have. What difference does that make? Our relationship has matured through the years. I mean, everything feels like we're on a sailing boat and the wind is pushing us, but we never know which direction is going to come next. Well, in this climate, and I don't think I'm alone with any of these thoughts. I think if you've been out there and you've been parenting, you've been, you've been at it, you know what I'm talking about. In this climate, in this culture of living in the unknown and, oh my goodness, what's next? And what are we going to do about this? Attitudes about parenting have changed. As a matter of fact, studies have been done on parents recently by organizations like Barna and Pew Research, and they have decided that when it comes to the next generation, the attitudes, the prevailing winds that blow are not for marriage, not for having children, but are actually against it. In fact, people in my age category that have had children and have kind of cut off children have a good reason. Here, in fact, here's their reason. Listen to this. When it comes to 18 to 49-year-old parents, according to Pew, who say they're unlikely to have more children in the future, here's why they don't want to have more children. Because they just don't want to. Now, here's what that means. If you read the research on that, here's what those parents are actually saying. They're saying, we don't think it's a good thing to bring any more kids into this world. It's actually a negative attitude about child rearing. That's what it's rooted in. It's it's suggesting that, hey guys, this is too tough. Like stepping into this unknown territory, it just sucked more life out of us than it actually breathed life into us. And as a result, and it's probably expected, the next generation, like Gen Z, when we pull them They have not only redone the definition of family and therefore marriage and the relationship between parent and child, but they have actually 
endorsed wholly this idea that maybe it's just better if we don't participate in this thing called marriage. Maybe it's better just not to have children. After all, I only get one body, and it looks good, and I don't want to ruin it. You've heard that. I mean, this is really, if we're looking at the prevailing winds in our culture, in our society, this is the way society is moving. We just don't want to. But what I want to do this morning is to present to you an alternative to that. Because what we fundamentally believe is that family is not only God's idea, but it is a good idea. It's a necessary part of this world. And we're going to explain a little bit more about why. But again, we've been in the Proverbs. And so what I want to do is I want to explain this alternative view, this what I will call a pro-family view. And I want to do it through the lens of wisdom literature, which is what Proverbs really is. And Jonathan Walker came last week, and as he introduced us to the Proverbs, he made a very important statement that we're going to need to identify and remember today. And it's this, that the Proverbs, when we look at them, are principles, not promises. So they sound like promises. Raise a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. That sounds like a promise. But this is wisdom literature. It's normally true, but it isn't always true. This is the normal way life works, that God, essentially, this is the worldview, has has set certain laws and rules in motion. And we can, the wise, can tap into those laws and those rules and make good decisions. Which is why we call wisdom literature this. We call it the art of skillful living. That's what we're after. In a world filled with nuances and opinions, the Proverbs act as a relief by just simply giving us some real direction, some tracks to run on. And sometimes that's what we really need. We don't need somebody's opinion. We just need some direction. So that's where we're going to go. Now, there's a couple other things you need to know before we get into it. When it comes to the Proverbs, and really when it comes to God and our theology about things of this nature, like parenting and child-rearing, what we actually are after is important. And what we are after, this is my contention, what we are after is God's ideal. That's what we want. God is an idealistic God. Now, that doesn't mean that he's divorced from reality. He understands the world that we find ourselves in. But he is a God who raises a standard. That's what we call God's ideal. And we discover what God's ideal is all the way back in Genesis, right? Where he creates a man, he creates a woman, and he sends them off. He says, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to be about. That's God's ideal. But it isn't long in the story before we discover that God's ideal isn't always reached which is the world in which you and I live and find ourselves. For instance, as soon as the garden event is over, we get right into the world of patriarchy. And patriarchy, which is still alive and well in the Middle East to this day, in patriarchy you have this thing called polygamy, and we find polygamy all through the Old Testament. This certainly isn't God's ideal, but God blesses in spite of it. See, God is still merciful, and he still blesses, even when we don't reach his ideal. And that's good news for you, because you probably don't reach his ideal. And when you're a parent and you come home with your first baby from the hospital, I'll bet you you don't reach God's ideal in every moment and every decision. It's good to know that that God is merciful and compassionate towards you in those moments as a parent. But it's also important that you realize that God's ideal is what you're chasing after. It's like the prize at the end of the finish line. When you're running, you don't look backwards or you get off course. When you're running, you always look to the prize, and as a result, it straightens your line. 
It helps you to run faster. If we let go of God's ideal, we will actually lose something and go backwards. So we're all about God's ideal. Then you get into the New Testament, and the New Testament isn't a world of patriarchy, even though that still exists, even in a Jewish context, but it's a Roman world. And so we get a whole new language of family, the household language, which we've borrowed a lot of even in our culture today. The household language or the Roman household language, though, looks different than the household you grew up in. Because in a Roman household, it included servants and slaves and, and everybody else who was under the umbrella of that household. It was bigger than just grandparents and, 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 and parents and children. It encompassed anybody in the household. And as a result, there were certain rules that built Roman society and culture. And we know those rules because they're actually articulated in the Bible, the New Testament. When Paul talks about family relationships, he appeals to the Roman household cold and order. He says, I want, you know, fathers or fathers don't exasperate your children. Children obey your parents. And then in the same context, he talks about slaves and masters. Why? Because he's talking about a Roman household code. You won't find that language in the Old Testament. It's a New Testament idea. So when we're trying to find a definition of how to do family, we're going to find all kinds of examples and illustrations from the scriptures that are not prescriptive, they're descriptive of how things operated and God's best case scenario within those cultures. But if you and I want to find a real definition of how we should live, how we should parent, and how children should be raised, we need to pursue God's ideal. Are you with me? You understand? This is absolutely critical to our understanding. So we're going to want to live skillfully and we're going to pursue God's ideal. Now, if we were to take patriarchy, we were to take the household, the Roman household order, and, and we were to pull out from those two things, the consistent theme, we might discover a number of things, but here's one thing I know we will discover in both. As God interacts within culture to raise kids, here's what we will discover. We will discover that order is a part of the equation. Order is a part of heaven, and it'll be a part of heaven's future. And as a result, God wants order in our families, in our homes. There's order because there's authority. Because there's authority, there's a way to live. There's order that comes from authority. And so God sanctions family and he sanctions and sets up how family ought to operate. When we speak in that language, God, what is it that we ought to do? We are talking about a culture of order, not disorder. This was to be pervasive in the family of God in the church, but it's to be pervasive in our homes. We aren't to be characterized as families filled with chaos between children and parents, but families filled and living out a well-ordered life. And that's the nature, and that's the push of Proverbs is to get us there. That's where we want to head. So what can we learn from the Proverbs? What can we learn from them? Well, we're going to learn the framework that we can live, work, and play in as we attempt to do this thing called family. And it begins where the Old Testament begins. It begins with fathers and mothers. In fact, look at this. The very first chapter of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1 says this, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and don't reject your mother's teaching. Here's why this is so critical and so important. We're at the very beginning of the Proverbs, and mom and dad are called out. Not just dad, not just mom. 
Now again, we have the experience of real life where there isn't always a dad or there isn't always a mom in our family picture. I want you to know God can be merciful. It's okay, but we're going to push towards God's ideal, right? God's ideal is a man and a woman. Why? Well, dads have been known. I mean, psychology tells us this. Dads have been known to, to sort of be problem solvers in the relationship for their kids. They seem to be the risk takers in the relationships. And dads, your kids need that from you. That's unique to you. And they need that influence in their life. Moms, on the other hand, are more nurturing and they're more sensitive. And by the way, moms, that's unique to you. And your kids need that influence in their life. My son possibly is watching from Virginia right now. And he doesn't know what I'm about to say, but I'm about to share a family secret. Are you guys with it? Here we go. And sometimes he calls us, he calls us, and, um, and he'll call mom for different needs. Then he'll call dad. But what he doesn't know is we're often in the same room. And we're just like smiling and winking at each other, right? Sorry, Seth. Uh, but he calls mom because mom has a nurturing spirit. He calls me because he wants direction. And he needs both. This is God's ideal. This is what God wants us to pursue with our children. In other words, in other words, the new sameness theology that our culture espouses is incorrect. You are meant to be different and you are different and your kids need it. In fact, they know it. Comedians have picked up on this through the years, haven't they? I mean, you could probably pick up a half dozen comedians. They've all done this pitch, this bit where they talk about the differences between men and women in childbearing. For instance, take directions. When my wife gives directions to my daughter, she starts with things like, hey, could you just, you know, if you want to get there, go towards the sunset. <laughs> and next to the pond, turn left, and then you'll see, you'll see the lemonade stand, just beautiful children, turn right there, you'll be where you need to be. And I'm looking at that, and I go, how in the world do you get there? Head towards the sunset? I mean, they need, they need like street signs. They need names. Can I get an amen? Here's the guys. There they are. I knew you were here, right? We do directions differently. Um, we do hurt differently. Your kid falls down and gets uh, what we call in our family, and I, my wife makes fun of me for this. We call it a boo-boo. Anybody else call it a boo-boo? That's a weird term, isn't it? has an awkward moment too at the same time. So, so our kid falls down, they get, a, they get hurt, and then they come crying to us. And in that moment, your masculinity comes out. You chuckle inside. Your kid's hurt. And you think it's the time to laugh. Because you're like, good, he's going to be tough. Like his daddy. Right? He's going to be telling you. And then your, your wife is sitting there going, oh my goodness, what happened? Here, stop, stop that. You're going to make a sissy out of him. <laughs> I mean, that's the truth. Dads, that's who you are. And yet they do need that nurture. Directions. <laughs> Hurt. How about this? Advice. I remember giving my son, Seth, my oldest son, advice on his bike. He just got a bike with disc brakes. And disc brakes are super, super sharp. And I'm like, Seth, I think you can handle this. It's a responsibility you can handle, but these things can cut your hands off. Be careful. And I remember pulling out of the driveway, pulling out of the driveway and hearing the most ungodly scream that every parent doesn't want to ever hear 
coming out of my son's vocal cords. And I look out, I stop the car, I open the door, I look out, and there's Seth's bike upside down, wheels spinning like a thousand miles an hour. And he's turned away from the bike and he's holding a stump of a finger. And he's screaming and his blood spurting out. This is, this is like an R-rated sermon, sorry. <laughs> and there, there in that moment, right, advice comes out. My wife in that moment is like, what do we do? What can I do to help? What do we need to do? And I'm sitting there in my flesh going, I told you. <laughs> told you not to do it. Now I know that's wrong. I'm just telling you it's there. It's in me. We give advice differently. The fact of the matter is we're all different. We're all different. And kids need both parents, ultimately. That's God's ideal. That's what he sets out as God's ideal. So never diminish your role in the relationship with your children. But that's not all we've been given. We've been given a larger family, haven't we? Listen to this. This is, this is about grandparents. Grandchildren are the crown of the elderly. Isn't that amazing? That when it comes to family, that God's picture, perfect family, is actually larger than just the, the localized geographic region, right? The, the mom, the dad, and the children. That God's family ideal is larger than that. That we are supposed to be cross-generational, cross-pollinizing, that we're actually supposed to be a family united together, moving together, where we value the advice of the older generations and let them speak into our lives. I would say, can I hear an amen? Some of you aren't there yet, but you're hoping somebody values what you have to say when you are. If you value what your parents have to say, maybe that will also be true of you when you get to that spot in life. One of the smartest things I ever did as a kid, kids, listen up. One of the smartest things I ever did as a kid was when I was 16, I got my driver's license and it was time uh, to, to go visit some relatives. And so I picked my grandma up in her old Oldsmobile. It was like a boat, you just floated, you know? Bench seats, all that. And, and we took off, and I picked her up from Orland, California, and we went all the way to Portland together. It was like about seven, eight hours, I think. And, and this entire time, Grandma did nothing but talk. <laughs> the whole time. And it was some of the richest experiences I've ever had with her. She just poured out her life story. Things I knew none of the other cousins knew, which gave me an edge up, which I still appreciate to this day. But she just told me all the failures that they had in their life and all the successes, but she told me how God took them through all of it successfully. You know, I will never forget that. We're here to value those who are aged, those who have done it before and gone before us, but they have something to value and vice versa. Children are a crown of their elderly. We value them. So we're not just a family, but we're an extended family. We value the voice of those, even if they're not in our family. There was a moment in time when Pastor Chris came to me, and this is several years back now, about five years ago, and I don't remember the circumstances around it. I know, though, that my heart had been prepared for it, that I had certain dreams and hopes as a parent, but I hadn't executed some of those things. I didn't know what the timing was, and I remember coming to church, and at church in the foyer, Pastor Chris came up to me, and he just simply said to me, and I don't know why, but he said, Jonathan, You've got to go make memories with your family. And in that moment, I knew now was the time to enact the plan. Like it resonated with me. 
And I knew something had to be done. And that we begin taking vacations as a family, which we just hadn't done in a while. And we begin traveling all over the country, something that was in my heart to do. And God allowed us to do those things. And I will never regret those things or hearing from my pastor in that moment. We need those voices in our life if we're going to parent successfully and raise our children. But here's, we look at the Proverbs, here's the thing that sort of exalts itself above all else. And it's this, that discipline matters. I know we need to go there, but this is the truth. When it comes to what we see emerging more than anything else, at least half of what we read in the Proverbs, because that's where we're at, half of the Proverbs, at least maybe two-thirds, is all about discipline. How to discipline your kids. Because God is an idealist and he wants order in our homes and there is no order apart from, say it with me, discipline. We have to have discipline in our own, our home. Listen to this, Proverbs 23 says it like this, puts it right in front of us. Don't withhold discipline from a youth. If you punish him with a rod, he will not die. That's my favorite verse in the Proverbs. (laughs) My kids know it well. He will not die. This is where, men, you need to step up and tell your wife, it's going to be okay. It's crying now. He'll be happy in the morning. That's what the Bible says. Joy comes in the morning. He will not die. Punish him with a rod, and you will rescue his life from shield. This is to speak of this idea of discipline, that there's something that must be done if we're going to rescue. You see, there's a slant here, isn't there? There's a, a momentum, an idea that's being presented that is countercultural. We live in a world where parents are deeply concerned and afraid of their children. The order is all messed up. They're afraid of what will happen if they discipline their children. And as a result of that fear, the kids get away with whatever they want to get away with. That's out of order. That is in God's ideal. It won't produce what God's design is for family. So what do we do? Well, it says you discipline, but you discipline for what purpose? You discipline to rescue them. You notice what he's saying? He's saying, look, there's two things. They're dying, and then there's discipline. Which one hurts worse? Okay, do the one that hurts less. Discipline. Actually, what he's saying is, this is what love looks like in a parent-child relationship. This is what it looks like. It looks like discipline. It looks like punishment from time to time. Can I say the word? The Bible does. I know the culture doesn't, but I just said it. I said it. There it is. Punishment speaks to the idea of household rules. See, it's not fair, right, or good, or loving to punish somebody for something when they had no idea what the rules were or what the consequences were associated with it. But we talk about crime and punishment all the time in our society because we realize inherently that there are certain rules that govern our relationships. And when we live inside those rules, we have freedom. And when we don't live inside those rules, then it changes strategically our relationship. We may want it to be this way, but when you broke the rule, now it became this way. And now there has to be punishment rendered. That's the discipline that is being elevated as God's ideal within the Proverbs. Here's what this means. This means that we have to possibly rethink how we view God. 
but it certainly means that we have within the household of God in our own families certain household rules. What are your rules? I'll bet you have some. I bet you have some rules that you've discovered, some rules that you've found effective, maybe some rules that you started that are no longer effective. But here's what I want you to do as we talk about something that is punitive, punishment-oriented, discipline-oriented. How do we go about this? How do we think about this aspect of parent-child rearing? If we believe that God is a moral law giver, we've got a problem. If his job is just simply to inflict morality on us, as if that's what's best for God, we've got a problem. If you're a dad and you have a whole bunch of rules and you believe that your rules are meant to help you govern, you've got a problem. You might even be abusive. But here's what we actually believe about God and by extension ourselves. What we actually believe is this, that God is not a moral law giver so much as he is a moral law gifter. Here's what I mean by that. Look at this Proverbs real quickly. It says this, eat honey, my son, for it is good. And the honeycomb is sweet to your palate. Realize that wisdom is the same for you. Honey was one of the most valuable, sweetest, best, purest things on earth in the ancient Near East. And he's saying, listen, this, this a beautiful thing, this pure thing, this is just like wisdom that you learn through discipline. In other words, in other words, God gives us tracks to run on. He gives us discipline, not because it benefits him, but because it is a gift to us. The goal of a good rule isn't, isn't to own somebody. The goal of a good rule is to free somebody. That's why the word rescue is used in the context of discipline. If you... If you discipline your child, you will save his soul from death. You will rescue him. See, the slant, the goal of discipline has to be about freeing your children, not about corralling them. And your kids know. They know if that rule is all about you or if that rule is really meant as a gift to them. What we have is an illustration of a heavenly father who doesn't just give us some arbitrary rules so that there's less noise in the house. What we have in the context of discipline in the Proverbs is a God who gives moral law as a gift to free the people so we can be everything we were meant to be. That's the goal of parenting. That's the goal. That's why we have the idea of training as part of our discipline regiment, our discipline theology. When it comes to discipline, what we're really talking about is a training regimen for our kids. In fact, here's that familiar verse that speaks to that as well. It says, start a youth out on his way. Even when he grows old, he will not depart from it. In other words, train your child in the right direction. Why? So that he can grow old so that he can live a full, long life. The idea of growing old meant that you had, you had skillfully lived life, that you lived life to the max, that you experienced all the blessing and all the purpose that God had for you. Saying if you want to do that, then start your kids moving in the right direction. You're the initiator as the parent. 
Make sure your rules promote them rather than curtail them. That's the nature of discipline. It's steering the ship, which reminds me of Jesus. You know, we call the disciples disciples because it's root, the root of that is discipline. And remember that story of Jesus who didn't seem to be at all cared about the disciples' comfort, but he was deeply concerned that they would be able to really live the way they were meant to live. And so he tells them to get into a boat and he puts them on the waves and it wasn't comfortable and it didn't feel secure. Security's overrated, but it was building them. It was growing them. It was unleashing them. It was promoting them. And he says, now you can go do likewise. You can do the same thing that I can do. And that's what parenting is all about. We're after deep roots, strong kids who can meet life's demands and grow old. That's where the Proverbs leave us. Now that's all God's ideal. But what I know to be true and what you know to be true is that we don't always reach God's ideal. And there are many reasons why. The fact is this world is broken and so we experience that brokenness. I call it contrary winds. When I was in Israel several months ago, we were on the Sea of Galilee and there's this statement made in the Gospel of Mark. It's the statement called contrary winds. The winds always blow out of the west, but every once in a while there's a contrary wind. And when you're in a sailing boat, that matters. Now, contrary wind blows out of the east, and while we were actually in a boat on the sea, a contrary wind happened. And I experienced it. It changed the course, right? The truth is, that's the way life actually works sometimes. Sometimes we start out reaching God's ideal, and then we find ourselves as single parents. Sometimes, rather than experiencing the fullness of family, we experience the heartache of loneliness feeling like we're doing everything all on our own and we're truly on our own. Sometimes we have physical ailments, things that really stumble us up, hinder us from being everything that we were meant to be. And as a result, it influences our experience and our picture of family and how it all comes together. Sometimes we experience poverty and we're never able to meet the things that we anticipated and hoped for our children. And we have to deal with that. We deal with depression. The truth of the matter is we all enter into this relationship with a certain level of brokenness, and sometimes it can be tragic. But perhaps the biggest area of brokenness, the most difficult one to overcome, is personal failure. As a parent, when you fail your kids, that can be very hard to overcome. It can be very isolating. It can be a place of great turmoil. And oftentimes we find the temptation to run is the strongest feeling and emotion that we have. So sometimes as children, you experience the parent who ran. See, that's the reality. But here's what I'm more and more convinced of. That in the darkest of times, God's light shines. You see, it's here in those moments that God wants to do something new. That God wants to speak to you. I'll never forget that moment in my life when my dad and my mom lost their jobs, and we were in the middle of a recession. It was the 90s, and we were heading into a war. There was a lot of things on the landscape that looked unpredictable. And in that moment, I can imagine two parents facing their kids saying, we don't know where our next meal is going to come from. We'd better pray about it. 
And I got over the course of that next year a lesson in not just how much my parents loved me, but a lesson in how much God loved us. As I saw God miraculously come through for my family over and over again. You see, I wouldn't give that story up for anything. In a sense, we were really living. Because in the midst of hardship, my parents demonstrated integrity and faithfulness, which is actually where I want to land the plane. If you don't do anything right, if you never read a book about how to raise kids, and you just needed one thing to hang your hat on, it would be this, be a person and be parents filled with faith and integrity. In fact, listen to how the Proverbs talk about this. A righteous person acts with integrity. That's what a righteous person does. They act with integrity. His children who come after him will be happy. So even though we didn't have much in those days, I learned the secret to contentment. I learned happiness, and I felt cared for by the hand of God, even though it wasn't by the hand of my parents. See, in the darkest of times, God's light shines. That's when he wants to reveal, and it often is revealed in hardship. You know how Job's life went? Do you know how Job starts off the book of Job? Job chapter 1, verse 1, you know how it starts? It says this. It says that Job was known all over publicly. He was known for perfect integrity. And you know the rest of the story. And as a result, his children, the next family, were happy. They were blessed. They were promoted. But I want you to understand this. It is because of that story because of that life of integrity that you get in on the blessing of that story. See, we're supposed to believe it. We're supposed to digest it. And we're supposed to live it out. What Job went through, what we've been through, what my, my home went through, we're supposed to now carry that forward and we're to live that integrity out even in the middle of hardship in a broken world where we don't always reach God's ideal, which leads me to this thought. And I think this is absolutely fundamental. Families are meant to play offense, not defense. Listen, this is huge. God gave society, the earth, culture, three legs of a stool. He gave us government. It's God's idea. If you work against government, you might find yourself working against God. He gave us the church. You didn't come up with the idea of church. God did. If you find yourself working against church, you might find yourself working against God. And listen to this. God gave us family. It was his idea. And if you work against family, you might find yourself working against God. And all three of those things were meant to influence culture and society globally all at once. There are three ingredients he placed within the earth to show his glory. And we dare not move away from them. Because in the vacuum, something worse, something sinister will expose its ugly head. The fact of the matter is we have a positive view of family, but all three of those things are on the advance. All three of those things are not defensive, they are primarily offensive. 
influencing society. As families, we are not on the defensive. As families, we are on the offense. We are the dark horse of society that, that at the last and unexpected minute comes to surface and influences and seasons life in culture and society. We're the pillar of truth in the community. When we move towards God's ideal, we move in his direction, we experience everything he wants us to experience, and his glory is revealed in those moments. If we were to go back to Genesis, we would see family being defined as God's ideal, one man, one woman, and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and what? Fill the earth, subdue, go out, make it happen. I'm sanctioning this activity. Find a wife, find a husband, make a family. I bless it. Now go do it and really live. I know it's scary. I know there's trouble. I know you don't have a manual that comes with that kid. I just want you to know I am in it with you. Yeah. And we will see God in it with us. But we have to go partake. We have to be on the offense. Which leads me to this final thought as I invite the band onto the stage. Families on mission, make it. God's given you a mission. He wants you to carry it out as a family. You know, one of the most interesting and encouraging stories of all of Scripture for family is the story of Noah. He was raised, by the way, his kids, in the most wicked and perverse generation the world has ever known. You think it's this generation? It's not. It was his generation. The Bible's clear. And yet in that generation, Noah was able to raise righteous kids. And... He was able to raise them publicly. We know he wasn't hiding out in the woods because God told him to do what? Build an ark. Where? In front of everyone. In front of everyone. Noah, go public. Go public with your righteousness. Go public with your family. Stand out. That's what I created you for. Now get after it. I've blessed it. That's what family is all about. Parents, you are not on the defense. You are on the offense. The Bible describes children as arrows. That's what they are. Now raise them in that manner. Let me pray for you. God, I just ask that, as I know online or here in the room, there are parents where this resonates, this message resonates, they want to do it, they need your help. Thank you for the blessing of realizing and knowing from your word that you're in it with them, that they're not alone. And Lord, even in a world of brokenness where we don't reach your ideal, we're so blessed by the truth that you're merciful, that you're there. And that, especially in a context like this, where there's so many grandmas and grandpas and so many brothers and cousins and sisters, that even if we find ourselves alone, really, truly, we are not alone. All we have to do is look up and look around and you will provide. Thank you for giving us a way forward in a world, in a world that is constantly shifting and changing. Thank you for old truth that has always worked, that has always moved your people to action. We pray that we'll live in light of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, 
visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.